0: Welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Derry and Commissioners for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 19. And before we fully start on this case, it is important to understand a concept in tax law called loss relief. Basically, this is where you have an asset. In this case, we will be dealing with shares and it unfortunately loses a lot, if not all, of its value. When this happens, you are allowed to offset some of this loss against either your income tax or capital gains tax, and this is referred to as loss relief. The respondent in this case, Mr Derry, bought 500,000 shares in a film production company for £500,000 at the end of the 2009-2010 tax year. During the next tax year, 2010-2011, Jerry sold these same shares for £85,500 and therefore suffered a loss of £414,500. This allowed him to claim loss relief, but the first key question that we come up against is in which tax year the loss relief should actually be claimed. After all, the shares were bought in 2009-2010, but was sold in 2010-2011. In the end, Derry opted for the 2009-2010 tax year, and so in his tax return for the following year, it was noted that the relief had already been previously claimed. This raised eyebrows at HMRC, who opened two inquiries. The first derived from Schedule 1A of the Taxes Management Act 1970, and was into the claim for the loss relief itself, On the basis that the claim was made outside of a return. The second derived from section 9a of that same 1970 act and looked into the subsequent return from 2010-2011. As a result of these inquiries HMRC found against Derry and issued a demand for nearly £100,000 with interest. You will not be surprised to hear that Derry disagreed with this finding and as a result he commenced a judicial review against HMRC, which centred around two questions. Firstly, whether the loss relief should have been claimed in 2009-2010 as per Derry's own tax returns, or whether, as per HMRC, the loss quote, related to, end quote, the subsequent year of 2010-2011. The second question builds on the first and states that if it was a mistake to make a claim within the 2009-2010 tax return, then should the loss relief be considered part of that return, nonetheless? Mr Derry had no luck in the upper tribunal, but he was more successful before the Court of Appeal. Even though they found that the loss relief did indeed relate to the later tax year, as per the contention of HMRC, they found in favour of Mr Derry on the second question, and so held that the loss relief nevertheless formed part of the 2009-2010 tax return. The reason for this is that there is a statutory time limit for inquiries into tax returns and the limit for the 2009-2010 return had expired. By the time the case reached the Supreme Court, both questions were still open for dispute and so it was up to the justices of the Supreme Court to offer a conclusion to this matter. As we begin to look at this judgment, you would be forgiven for thinking that we would be focusing on the provisions of the Taxes Management Act 1970. After all, this was the statutory basis of the two inquiries led by HMRC, but in actual fact the Supreme Court began with the Income Taxes Act 2007 that contains the provisions relating to loss relief. To be more precise, Lord Carnwath noted in his lead judgment that Section 23, alongside Sections 131 and 132 of the 2007 Act, together comprise a comprehensive scheme for dealing with loss relief in relation to shares. The legislation allows someone in Mr Derry's position to not only make the claim, but also to specify the year for which it is to apply. That point is fundamental because it completely undercuts the argument made by HMRC that it is instead the rules from the 1970 Act that should apply. Such an approach is unjustified when there are already clear rules in place and the older statute is only tangentially related to the more recent one, in both subject matter and content. All of this is a rather basic tenet of statutory interpretation, as many of the persuasive factors that may have been raised by HMRC, such as the legislative history of this area, or the guidance offered by the explanatory notes that accompany the Act, do not override what is actually contained in the law itself that has been enacted by Parliament. Furthermore, this approach has special resonance when dealing with consolidated statutes such as the Income Tax Act 2007. In fact, the Supreme Court approved the method that was previously laid out in the Upper Tribunal case of Eclipse Film Partners and Commissioners of HMRC from 2013, which I think is worth quoting in full. They said, quote, When construing a consolidating statute which is intended to operate as a coherent code or scheme governing some subject matter, the principal inference as to the intention of Parliament is that it should be construed as a single integrated body of law without any need for reference back to the same provisions as they appeared in earlier legislative versions. An important part of the objective of a consolidating statute or a project like the Tax Law Rewrite Project is to gather disparate provisions into a single, easily accessible code. That objective would be undermined if, in order to interpret the consolidating legislation, there was a constant need to refer back to the previous, disparate provisions and construe them. In the end then, Derry was successful on this first question that had been raised in the judicial review, as the 2007 Act makes it clear that he is within his rights to submit his claim in relation to the earlier 2009-2010 tax year. That also means that the Supreme Court was not required to address the second question, which, as Lord Carnworth noted, was probably for the best because there were only limited submissions by the parties on issues such as inquiries by HMRC under the 1970 Act, and even how the online form should be interpreted. As we move on to our own analysis of this case, I think there is an interesting point to be made here about the relationship between tax avoidance and statutory interpretation. The reason that Derry organised his tax returns in this way was to avoid having to pay as much tax. And at this point, I think it is important to note that tax avoidance is not to be confused with tax evasion. Whereas tax evasion is illegal, tax avoidance is much closer to finding legal loopholes in the law In a bid to pay as little as tax as possible. In spite of this being legal it doesn't mean that the authorities are happy about it and in borderline cases like this it is not surprising that HMRC decided to open an inquiry. This also brings us onto a less discussed part of statutory interpretation that judges will generally take an unsympathetic view of tax avoidance and will try to interpret the law so as to close such loopholes. What this case teaches us is that this approach has its limits and so when the legislative provisions are clear in what they mean, the court will not go so far as to adopt an interpretation that contradicts the words as they are written on the page. I think this is why it is easy to understand the reason the upper tribunal and to a lesser extent the court of appeal were more willing to bend the meaning of the legislation and look back at the 1970 statute despite its limited application here. What the Supreme Court is basically saying here is that enough is enough. There is no escaping the wording of the 2007 Act, hard as the lower courts might try and ignore it. Such an interpretation would only serve to place judges in a more difficult position in future cases if this became the binding precedent. Beyond that, I also think that another takeaway from this case is that it is important to place limits on the powers available to HMRC. Of course, it is important that they have the power to conduct inquiries into tax returns and other claims, but it is equally important that this ability is not completely unchecked. If it were, then the result would be a great degree of uncertainty for taxpayers, as questions from many years previous could crop up at any time and play havoc with people's lives. The real lesson from this judgment goes out to HMRC, who should learn to not only conduct investigations in a timely and efficient manner, but should also ensure that their legal department are drafting legislation in a clear and consistent fashion. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you want to find out more about my work, then do visit the website at uklawweekly.com where you can also sign up for the free mailing list. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!